You're listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for opening up this time and space for us to be with you and to be with each other. I pray that you will give us ears to hear and the courage to respond to what you're saying to us so that we can be the people we need to be for our neighbors and the strangers around us and our enemies. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So 1 Corinthians 13 that Jen read so beautifully for us just a moment ago is a familiar passage. I mean, we all know the passage well. We hear it at most weddings, if not, if not all of them. And it is because of that, I think because of where we hear it and the context in which we hear it, it is a beautiful passage and a kind of sentimental one. But if you pay attention to what's being said, it's actually a rather vexing, daunting passage. Because Paul is not talking about a man and a woman who've fallen deeply in love with each other, how they will love each other. He's talking to a community of people that are splintered into a thousand pieces and telling them how they should relate to each other. So it's actually incredibly intimidating, the idea that we're supposed to love one another with this kind of love that's patient and kind and bears no record of wrongs and is enduring all things. I mean, it's, again, if you think about that only as a man and a woman idealized in, in romantic love, then that seems at least desirable. But when you think about it in terms of the people you have to live with day to day in the Christian community and bearing everything that they have to bring to bear, it's, it's something else altogether. And it's, it's a really, it's a challenging call. And I've struggled with it for, for a long time, both as a pastor, someone who's trying to lead a community into that kind of care for each other, and just as a, a man and a husband and a father, like how could I possibly live this kind of love? And it finally hit me that it's not what we're called to do, not really. That 1 Corinthians 13 is not a, a, a vision of the life you and I are supposed to live, not first and foremost. It's first and foremost a description of God's love for us. That what's being said in 1 Corinthians 13 is not, you should live like this, but you are loved like this. God is this, and he is this way with you. God is patient. God is kind. God bears no record of wrongs. God endures all things. God never ends. And the good news is, we're not supposed to live up to it. The good news is, God lives it toward us. In that way, it's very much like the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is not a standard, a law that we try to live up to that we find impossible to achieve. The Sermon on the Mount is a description of the life Jesus lives. It's a description of Jesus himself. And that's good news, that God is acting on us. And I don't think we can remind ourselves too often that our life with God rests not in our faithfulness to him, but in his faithfulness to us. That what matters more than anything else is not that I know God, but that God knows me. It's not that I love God, but that God loves me. You can see this over and over in Scripture, but one of the, the clearest examples of this is 
where in the New Testament it insists that the promise God made to save us, God made to God before the ages began. So like in Titus 1, there's a passage that says, God who cannot lie promised before the ages began our eternal life. Now think about what that means. Before the ages began, before there was anything else, before there was Adam and Eve, before there was a garden, before there was Israel, before there was the church, before there was you or me, God had already promised to God that he would bring about eternal life which means that I can have confidence that God is going to bring his promise to fulfillment because it's not dependent upon me. It's not dependent upon my performance or my achievements or my accomplishments, but God's promise is to God. How do we know that God is going to come through? Because God is partnered with God for our sake. And that's, I think, the good news of 1 Corinthians 13. That's the kind of love that we're loved with. And we can live in community together because... God loves us with that kind of love. That's how we can stomach each other. That's how we can endure each other, right? Not just for a few Sundays, but over a lifetime. And how we can learn to live together as a, as a family and gather together at this table week after week, not because we are loving God well, but because God is loving us well. And, and his loving us is kind of holding us, holding us together, keeping us together as a family. And we can rest in that. But there is, there is some bad news in the good news. And the bad news in the good news is that kind of love that God is loving us with happens to us and it can't help but change us. God's love, as it, as it is happening to us, as God is loving us, it is actively changing who we are. It's like holding something radioactive up against your body. It, it will affect you. It will change you. And you can't be in the presence of God. You can't be taking him in and receiving his word and dwelling in his presence without being altered by it. You can't be loved like this by God without having your fundamental DNA altered, who you are being changed. And that is, in some ways, bad news because that is a painful process. That process of transformation, of being loved like that by God, is sometimes hard to bear. And it's, it's especially, I think, it's acutely kind of pressed on us in today's reading. So in the lectionary today, you have 1 Corinthians 13, but it's coupled with the story of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 1, and what's called the call of Jeremiah. And by juxtaposing those two texts, that God's love is at work in us in all of these ways, with the story of Jeremiah, it kind of brings to bear on us this awareness of how painful it can be for God's love to be at work in us. Now, most people only know a couple of things about Jeremiah. One is Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you, right? Plans for you to prosper, be in health, and so on. The other is Jeremiah 1, the passage that we're about to read, where God says to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you and I called you. Now, if you only knew those two things about Jeremiah, if you only knew these two passages, the, the, the Jeremiah who said, who God, of whom God says, I have a plan for you, and I knew you before I formed you, then it might be sheerly comforting. But there's a lot more to Jeremiah than that. Let's go to Jeremiah chapter 1. And what I want to suggest today, what, what I really want to you know, press on us is that I think Jeremiah's story is a story about what it means to be a prophetic people, 
in whom the love of God is happening. So if the love of God, as we read about in 1 Corinthians 13, if that's happening among us, then it's going to take a shape like it takes in the life of Jeremiah because we're a prophetic community. We're a people called to bear witness to what God is doing in the world. So let's, let's read Jeremiah 1 through 10. In the words, or these are the words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of King Josiah, son of Ammon of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of King Jehoiakim, son of Josiah of Judah, and until the end of the eleventh year of King Zedekiah, son of Josiah of Judah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, and this is the passage we know well. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, truly I do not know how to speak, for I am only a boy. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a boy, for you shall go to all to whom I send you, and you shall speak whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them. For I am with you to deliver, the, to deliver you, says the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. It's very similar to the Isaiah story in this way. And the Lord said to me, Now I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to pull down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. This story opens with a couple of words about Jeremiah that it's, it's easy to jump past. It says that the words of Jeremiah, to whom, these are the words of Jeremiah, to whom the word of the Lord came. And this is a, a kind of subtle way of telling us about what the prophetic life is. These are the words of Jeremiah, to whom the word of the Lord came. So that it's at, at the same time, this story that we're reading, the story that we've just opened, is, is a story being told by Jeremiah in his own words, and yet it is also at the same time somehow the word of the Lord. And this, this is what it means, first and foremost, to be a prophetic community. It means to, to be who we are and to do what we do, to say what we say, and to trust that somehow in the midst of all that, as we're doing what we do and saying what we're saying, that somehow God's word is happening in the midst of all that. That not just in a sermon like this, and not just at a, at a table like this, but in whatever we're doing as a community, there, is what, there are our words and there are his word. And there is his word. And, and they're, they're happening together somehow. And we can never quite track how they're related. That's the mystery of God's work with us, the humility of God, that he could do his work in the world without us, but doesn't do his work in the world without us. That what God wants to accomplish in the world, what God wants to see done, he's partnered with us to do it. I, I think there's a way in which, maybe especially those of us who've grown up in spirit traditions, in, in Pentecostal and charismatic traditions, we think of, of God's work as something that happens to us, rather than it being something that we do. That we're, we're waiting on God to act on us all the time. And, and there is, of course, I think, that expectation. God acts on us. But so much of what Scripture is about is about us acting with God in the world. Us being the presence of God in the world. Not waiting on the presence of God to come to us, but being the presence of God in the midst of, in the midst of our generation. And I, I think that's first and foremost the lesson of all the prophets. 
is that the prophets are just men and women like you and me, and yet somehow in being who they are, God's word is happening. God's word is taking place in, in the midst of their time and place. Now, and and we, we, we can stand back from all of it. We, we read something like the book of Jeremiah, and we, we hear it as obvious that Jeremiah is a prophet, right? Because we, we hold this as sacred scripture, and we already believe that Jeremiah is a saint. But of course, in the midst of this experience, no one around Jeremiah recognizes this as unquestionably the word of God. I mean, in the gospel reading for today, it's the story of Jesus going to his synagogue and reading the text from Isaiah and people marveling at his, at his wisdom and, and the power of his presence. And then they press him for explanation. And when he explains what the text means, they are enraged with him. And they say, is not this Joseph's son? I mean, think about what that means, that when God was in the flesh amongst us, nobody knew who he was. No one recognized him. Even when he's teaching, even when he's prophesying, no one immediately recognizes, oh, that's God speaking. They say instead, when God is speaking, they say, is this not Joseph's son? And it's going to be the same for us, for you and for me. One, on, on the one hand, that should humble us. We should recognize that even while we're being the people of God and we're speaking the word of God, people aren't going to recognize it. It's not as if everyone around us in this community is going to say, oh, wow, God is speaking there. Right? A few of them may, but most will not. But it also should humble us in the sense that who are we hearing and not recognizing this speaking the word of God to us? How is God already speaking to us? Who is prophesying to us? And we're saying, oh, is this not Joseph's son? Oh, is this not Jeremiah from Anathoth? Like where we, we think we know because we know the people and we understand how ordinary they are, that it can't be God's word being spoken through them. I, I think the good news is God's going to speak through people. The bad news is God speaks through people. And, and you have to hold all that together. I mean, the good news is God is going to speak through you. And the bad news is God speaks through you. And it's, it's, hard, it's hard for us, I think, to come to terms with the fact that God is willing to work with people who are less than perfect. He doesn't seem to have the same standards that we do. I mean, look at the disciples that he chose. Think about it. That's not particularly, I mean... I don't know that Jesus has a career as a headhunter, right? I mean, he didn't, he didn't necessarily choose the best of the best to be with him. Read the Gospels, right? Because he he's, seems to be willing, not only willing, but determined to work with people who really aren't likely to be doing what they're doing. Even in this text with Jeremiah, what is Jeremiah's response when God calls him? Wait a minute, I'm just a boy. You shouldn't be giving me this responsibility. But God seems determined to give responsibility to the people who don't really deserve it, who aren't really up for it, who aren't really capable of it. That's good news and that's bad news, right? That's, a, that's humbling and it's humiliating. But that's the way that, that God works. And, and we just have to lean into it. We have to accept that that's what's true about us and, and not run from it and not hide from it. We're told right away in, in this, these opening couple of verses, that Jeremiah is from the priests who were in Anathoth. This is a way the writer is 
immediately clarifying for us that Jeremiah is not some kind of pure soul who's abstracted from a real life. Because the, the story of the priests of Anathoth is at the end of David's life, there, there is a rebellion. And there are two sons, Adonijah and Solomon, who appear as rivals. And it's not clear which one of these two sons is going to actually be the heir to David's throne. And there's a priest, Abiathar, who decides to go with Adonijah to side with him. And of course, this is a political miscalculation because Solomon is the one who is enthroned as the next king. And one of the first things that Solomon does, I mean, the, the very first thing Solomon does is kill people and banish them. But that's how Solomon's reign begins. It's, it's really tragic because David had made all of these promises to people that he wouldn't kill them. And on his deathbed, David says to Solomon, I promised all these people that I wouldn't kill them, but I didn't promise them that you wouldn't kill them. So when I die, this is what I want you to do. And Solomon does it. And one of the, one of the tasks he has is to banish Abiathar and the priests to Anathoth. So 400 years have passed, and there are still priests in that city just north of Jerusalem. And imagine what it's like to be raised in a family that was banished from the priesthood and yet kept identity as priests within shouting distance of the political center where the other priests who were accepted continue to do their work. This, this is a family of deep resentment that sees what's happening in Jerusalem for hundreds of years, generation after generation, saying, that should have been us. Now imagine you, you are in the audience when Jeremiah starts prophesying against Jerusalem. You know what you and I are going to do right away? We're going to dismiss him because we know his story. Of course Jeremiah is going to prophesy against Jerusalem because he was banished. He comes from those people who were marginalized, so he's speaking from that place of bitterness. And as soon as we start to find out, and this is true of anyone in Scripture and true of anyone in ministry, as soon as you start to find out their humanity, it immediately seems to subvert their authority. I remember when I was in Bible college, there was a minister who came through, and we would, you know, Bible school, we had chapel all the time and revival all the time. And in this particular revival, I'll never forget this, he said to us, he was a pastor of a huge church, and he told us, he said, if you really want to minister to people, you must not let them get too close to you. Now, I think that's incredibly cynical, right? But it's also true in a certain way. If, if, you, if you really want to have a kind of magical sway in people's lives, you can't let them into your humanity. And part of what Jeremiah is doing right away is saying, this is, this is a very human man, this is a man with a very real history, a history of real brokenness. And he's speaking out of that brokenness to what he sees happening in his, in, in, among his people. So Jeremiah is, is a priest of Anathoth, and he lives a very long time. And we're told that his ministry carries through the, the ministry of three kings. There are two kings who have really short reigns that aren't even mentioned. So Jeremiah's ministry actually stretches across five kings and one of the things that's striking is it, it stretches to the end. It says that he is prophesying 
until the end of the 11th year of King Zedekiah, son of Josiah, until the captivity of Jerusalem in the fifth month. And this, this again, is a powerful line in these opening, word, opening words because what it's telling you is all of this prophecy that's about to take place, it ends in doom. It ends in Israel's captivity. This is why Jeremiah, who's known as the weeping prophet, is also called the prophet of doom because his entire ministry, this long ministry of prophecy, is a ministry of predicting the coming fall of Jerusalem and the coming captivity of Israel. And there's nothing his words can do about it. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. He is, as Dr. Ricky Moore says, the prophet of lost causes. He's, he's called by God. And this, this, I think, is how we should hear the promise of God. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you and called you to be a prophet. I think that kind of affirmation of his calling is given because it's going to be necessary. Jeremiah, I'm calling you to do something that's virtually impossible, and that is to prophesy to a people about what's coming, and there's nothing anybody can do about it. One of the things that's striking about Jeremiah's prophecies is that he doesn't call Israel to repentance. He doesn't say, God is going to judge you, repent. He just simply says, the judgment is coming. And when the judgment comes, lean into it. Go to the land, build your houses, plant your vineyards, raise your children. There is nothing you can do about it. It's going to happen. And this prophecy absolutely wrecks Jeremiah. It absolutely wrecks him. One of the things that the rabbis say about Jeremiah, they say, one, he's the only one who suffered more than Job. Job and Jeremiah are the only two Old Testament characters who say they wish they had never been born. But Job, of course, his story at the end turns to restoration. Jeremiah's story does not. And so the rabbis say that Jeremiah suffered more than anyone, even more than Job. And they say the other thing, the reason that he suffered so much, is that he's the only one of the prophets who refused to take a side between God and Israel. And they don't use this image exactly, but it's, it's like a child of a divorce who refuses to side with one parent or another. And what you see all the way through the prophecies of Jeremiah is that he will, on the one hand, talk as if he's one with God. So he'll say things like, I am filled with the wrath of God, and I'm ready for it to be poured out upon the children and the infants in the street. And then he will say, Lord, we have been abandoned by you. We have done wrong, but you have not come to our rescue. So that he can speak in this way of sharing in God's identity and sharing in Israel's identity. And this, I think, is what it means to be a prophetic community. To refuse to take sides and to suffer with everyone who's involved. To suffer with God in God's brokenness, and to suffer with the world in the world's brokenness. That this, this is, and it takes an incredible stomach to hold all that together. All of us are going to be drawn to one or the other. The, the rabbis give the example of Elijah takes God's side against Israel, and Jonah takes Israel's side against God. But Jeremiah refuses to take sides, and it, it kills him. 
He spends his life in this kind of constant agony. There's the one of the another ways, another of the ways that the rabbis talk about this is they they say Jeremiah, they, they point out that Jeremiah is a priest, and they say, Jeremiah is like a priest who is called to offer the ordeal of bitterness. So I don't know if you know about the ordeal of bitterness, but in the Old Testament, in, in the book of Numbers, there's the test for a woman who's accused of adultery with no proof. She's brought in, the accused woman is brought into the holy place, into the tent, and they take some water and some dust from the, the, from the ground in the tent, mix it together, and make her drink it. And if she's guilty, then she will, the, the baby will die, and she might die. And if she's not guilty, then she'll be fine. Right? This, is, this, is called, this is the, the bitter ordeal, the, the, the test for the adulterous woman. And the striking thing is, they, the rabbis say, that this is what Jeremiah has to do. He's the priest that has to administer this. And then the day that he is to administer it, the woman who shows up, the accused woman, the sota, that shows up is his mother. And this is what it's like to be Jeremiah to be the one who has to present and test the word, the word of God with his own mother, with, with the one he, he loves and from whom he's come. And it's, it's another interesting detail here in these opening verses where God says to Jeremiah, I have called you to be a prophet unto the nations. Do you notice that? But almost all of Jeremiah's prophecies are to Israel. And... There's a point in the, in the text where Jeremiah complains against God and says, you deceived me because you told me I was a prophet to the nations. You told me that I was going to bring a judgment against the nations, but then you've, you've sent me over and over and over again to my own family. So you can see this way in which Jeremiah is, is deeply anguished. Let me show you one, one example of this, Jeremiah 20. Jeremiah 20, verse 7. I want you to listen to how all of these, how all that Jeremiah has internalized is kind of conflicted in him, how deeply conflicted he is. Jeremiah 20, verse 7. O Lord, you have enticed me, and I was enticed. You have, this word enticed, by the way, is the same word for um, seduced. You have overpowered me, and you have prevailed. I have become a laughing stock all day long. Everyone mocks me. For whenever I speak, I must cry out. I must shout violence and destruction. For the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and derision all day long. The word of the Lord for me has become a reproach and a derision all day long. If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, then without me there is, within me there is something like a burning fire shut up in my bones. You guys ever heard the old Pentecostal sermon about the fire shut up in your bones? Well, in, in context, this isn't good news, right? You don't want the fire shut up in your bones, right? Because the fire shut up in your bones is the fire of God's wrath against Israel. And Jeremiah doesn't want to say it. He doesn't want to share it. And yet he can't not share it. And this, by the way, is, is always a good sign of a true prophet. A true prophet never takes joy in prophesying the coming judgment of God. Some people think they're prophets. They're just mean, they're just rude. 
And they, they enjoy talking about the judgment of God coming against other people. That's not prophetic. To be prophetic is to have the judgment of God happening in you and to resist it as much as you can because you love these people. Jeremiah says, I want to shut it down, but I can't. It's, it's shut up in me, but it won't, it won't stay shut up in me. I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. For I hear many whispering, terror is all around. Denounce him. Let us denounce him. All my close friends are watching for me to stumble. Perhaps he can be enticed and we can prevail against him and take our revenge on him. But the Lord is with me like a dread warrior. Now we are suddenly, I mean, for the first few verses here, it is Jeremiah complaining about the fact that the word of the Lord is bringing misery on him. And now he's saying, and these people are against me because I'm prophesying against them. But the Lord is with me like a dread warrior. The Lord is with me. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble and they will not prevail. They will be greatly shamed for they will not succeed. Their eternal dishonor will never be forgotten. O Lord of hosts, you test the righteous. You see the heart and the mind. Let me see your retribution upon them. For to you, I have committed my cause. And now Jeremiah seems to be in this moment of absolute oneness with God, confidence in God's goodness, certainty that God will take his side. And then he says, sing to the Lord, praise the Lord, for he has delivered the life of the needy from the hands of evildoers. And no sooner has he said that than he says, cursed be the day on which I was born. This man sounds schizophrenic. Because this is what it's like to live a life of love in the midst of the world. Because if you, if you live a really human life filled with the love of God in the midst of this world, you are constantly going to be encountering both the faithfulness and goodness of God and the judgment of God against you and against others. You're constantly going to be running up against that that brings joy from you and that that brings sorrow from you. To be a faithful person is to not try to choose one over the other or to run from one to the other, but to internalize, to take in all of it at once, to hold it together. There was a, and I've shared this with you before, but I'll share it again. S several years ago, a woman came up to me after I had spoken. And she said, I think I know what you were trying to say. She said, I, ha I have an older friend who has a child who's in the hospital dying with cancer, and she's pregnant late in life. So at the hospital the other day, she was there with her oldest child who's dying of cancer while the baby was kicking in her womb just a few weeks from delivery. And she said, I was in the room while that mother, pregnant mother, was holding her dying son up against her belly so that her dying son could feel his younger brother kicking. That's the Christian life. There is joy. There is strength. There is peace. There is goodness. There is the baby kicking in the womb. And there is the dying son. Always, at every turn. And to be a prophetic community, to be a community like Jeremiah, where the love of God is happening, is to be a community where we refuse to choose the child over the older son or the older son over the child. We refuse to be a community where all we do is sing about joy and peace and happiness. And we refuse to be a community where all we do is lament and mourn and groan. We do all of it. And sometimes in the same breath. Sing, for God is faithful. Why was I even born? And if you feel like that, if you feel like sometimes early in the morning you want to praise God and by mid-afternoon you're ready to jump off the tallest building nearby, 
that's normal for a person filled with the love of God. I mean, it's normal for mentally ill people too, but it's also, it's also normal for people who are filled with the love of God. Because to be filled with the love of God is to recognize that this world is not what it should be. We don't yet have what we should have, and that brings me to the good news and the bad news of the good news. So we started with good news, then we had the bad news of the good news, but here's the good news about the bad news, and that is that this love that's happening in us, this love that, like is in Jeremiah, will bring all kinds of anguish to us. This love never ends, which means this love is going to outlast every captivity. It's going to outlast every attack of the enemy. It's going to outlast every failure and betrayal. It's going to outlast everything you do wrong and everything everybody does, anybody does wrong to you. God's love never ends. And that means to be a prophetic people is to just stay in the process. We're going to get a lot wrong. We're going to say a lot we shouldn't say and fail to say a lot that we should say. We're going to show up where we shouldn't show up and fail to show up where we should. We're going to get a lot wrong. But all we have to do is stay committed to this God whose love never ends. And it may take past our lifetimes and past the lifetimes of our children, but eventually all this world will be put right. Eventually, all that is wrong is going to be put right. Eventually, every sickness is going to be healed. Eventually, every broken relationship is going to be restored. That's what we're waiting on. That's why we cry, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We're waiting on God to come and set this world right. And the love that is in us, we're waiting on that love to happen to everyone and everything. And we're confident that it will. So we can face any trouble we don't have to run from any difficulty, no matter how difficult it is, no matter how painful life is for us, no matter how painful the world is, we know that there is a love that doesn't end. So I want you to think, and I'm almost done, but I want you to think specifically about the issues that are happening around us right now. Issues of racism, issues of prejudice, ways in which those things seem beyond our capacity to address. How could we possibly bring justice when there's this, this long, deep history of brokenness? What could we possibly do? What could we say or do that would matter at all? And all we have to do is say, we suffer with those who suffer, rejoice with those who rejoice, and let the love of God keep happening. Just let it keep happening. And it, it may not come quickly. It won't come quickly. But after generations or generations, when the time is right, when God's fullness of time comes, he will make it right. He will make it right. And we keep insisting on that, that these wrongs that have been done, they will not stand forever. That there's no, no wrong that's been done in the world that God is not going to address, that God's not going to put right. And so we don't have to fear facing any of it. We don't have to fear facing the brokenness of families, those around us, the abuse of children around us, sex trafficking, poverty, sickness, war. None of these things intimidate us. We understand that they, they are ugly. We understand that they are evil. We grieve 
that these things are happening in our world. We grieve like Jeremiah grieved, but we also grieve knowing that love never ends. Listen to these words. Love, and, love endures all things, believes all things, hopes all things, bears all things. Love never ends. Not my love, my love ends, but his love doesn't. And all I have to do is be a sight for the love of God to happen. Let the love of God happen to me and keep happening to me until it starts to happen through me to other people. And that's what it would look like for us to be a prophetic community. Let me pray for you. I'll get out of the way. God, thank you for Jeremiah, the example that he gave us, the model that he is for us. It was long after his death but his prophecy about Israel coming home came true. And God, I don't know what you're meaning for Oasis to be, what our prophecy is, what we as a prophetic community are supposed to do. And it may, may be years and years and years before what we're called to do matters in the world, but we trust that if we just let your love keep happening in us, if we just keep holding together our love for you and our love for our neighbor. Refuse to separate, refuse to choose a side. If we just let all of that happen in us, God, we believe that your will will be done in earth as it is in heaven. That you will set wrongs right. And that the last word is a word of good news. The last word is a word of joy. So God, for my brothers and sisters, I pray, if they're feeling crazy, if they're feeling overwhelmed with the conflicts, God, I pray that they settle and realize that conflictedness is, is part of the life of faith. It's part of living a faithful life, to have in our heart at the same time sorrow for those who are sorrowing and joy for those who are rejoicing. But we, don't, we don't choose one or the other. We hold it all together. And we hold it all together because your love is holding us. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes. And if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.